Shalom, friends. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Access. This is Timothy, and I'm happy we get to study the scriptures together today. Quick question. Have you ever lost something that was valuable to you? Uh, maybe you simply misplaced it, or somebody else borrowed it and never returned it, or maybe you were just careless and you happened to drop it somewhere. Uh, what was it that you lost? You know, it really bugs me when I misplace my keys, my wallet, my water bottle, or my, my phone on a daily basis. Not that those things are terribly valuable to me or anything, but, but there were those other times when my expensive items got destroyed. My iPod Classic went into the washing machine with the laundry. Uh, my brand new iPhone was thrown into the toilet by my toddler on the second day I had it. Uh, my MacBook was unnecessarily destroyed with all my work files and everything was gone. Now those times stung a bit, but the sting didn't last very long. I mean, stuff gets broken all the time, right? In fact, um, just earlier today, um, my three-year-old threw a toy at the television and I had to replace another TV. This would be the seventh or eighth one in the past ten years. <laughs> I mean, sure, those things were expensive. They had a hefty price tag, but how valuable were they really to me? When something valuable is stolen from you, it's a bit more difficult to move past that, isn't it? I mean, forgiveness and all that jazz, you know, trust issues in relationships, and, and working through all those issues after being violated. I remember when I bought my first car, uh, my window got smashed in, while my car was sitting in our driveway. Yeah, some stuff was stolen, but just that feeling knowing that my precious car was vandalized on my own property, I was obviously upset. But what about getting something stolen from you that was promised for you, but you didn't have it just yet? Stolen possibilities, stolen opportunities. Somebody at work steals that promotion that was meant for you. Somebody tells lies about you and smears your reputation so that nobody would ever want to date you, hire you, or even give you a chance. Our study today is called Stolen Blessing, and we're learning more about the twins, Jacob and Esau. If you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all of our studies under the Files tab. Also visit our website at connectionsministries.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any of our studies. As we continue our study through Genesis, I recommend having a Bible handy to follow along. And I encourage you to take some time with your own Access Church communities or small groups and review this study together. Now let's get started. Stolen Blessing. Today, my wife Beverly will be reading from Genesis chapters 27 and 28 from the Complete Jewish Bible. In the course of time, after Yitzhak had grown old and his eyes dim so that he couldn't see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. Look, I'm old now. I don't know when I will die. Therefore, please take your hunting gear, your quiver of arrows and your bow. Go out into the country and get me some game. Make it tasty the way I like it and bring it to me to eat. Then I will bless you as firstborn before I die. Rivka was listening when Yitzhak spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went out to the country to hunt for game and bring it back, she said to her son Yaakov, Listen, I heard your father telling Esau, your brother, Bring me game and make it tasty so I can eat it. Then I will give you my blessing in the presence of Adonai before my death. 
Now pay attention to me, my son, and do what I tell you. Go to the flock and bring me back two choice kids. I will make it tasty for your father the way he likes it, and you will bring it to your father to eat, so that he will give you his blessing to you before his death. Yaakov answered Rivka, his mother, Look, Esav is hairy, but I have smooth skin. Suppose my father touches me. He'll know I'm trying to trick him, and I'll bring a curse on myself, not a blessing. But his mother said, Let your curse be on me. Just listen to me, and go get me the kids. So he went, got them, and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared them in the tasty way his father loved. Next, Rivka took Esav, her older son's best clothes, which she had with her in the house, and put them on Yaakov, her younger son and she put the skins of the goats on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. Then she gave the tasty food and the bread she had prepared to her son Yaakov. He went to his father and said, My father? He replied, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Yaakov said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done what you asked me to do. Get up now, sit down, eat the game, and then give me your blessing. Yitzhak said to his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? He answered, Adonai your God made it happen that way. Yitzchak said to Yaakov, Come here, close to me, so I can touch you, my son, and know whether you are in fact my son Esau or not. Yaakov approached Yitzchak, his father, who touched him, and said, The voice is Yaakov's voice, but the hands are Esau's hands. However, he didn't detect him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he gave him his blessing. He asked, Are you really my son Esau? And he replied, I am. He said, Bring it here to me, and I will eat my son's game, so that I can give you my blessing. So he brought it up to him, and he ate. He also brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Yitzhak said to him, Come close now, and kiss me, my son. He approached and kissed him. Yitzhak smelled his clothes, and blessed Yaakov with these words. See, my son smells like a field which Adonai has blessed. So may God give you dew from heaven, the richness of the earth, and grain and wine in abundance. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. May you be lord over your kinsmen. Let your mother's descendants bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. But as soon as Yitzchak had finished giving his blessing to Yaakov, when Yaakov had barely left his father's presence, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He too had prepared a tasty meal and brought it to his father, and now he said to his father, Let my father get up and eat from his son's game, so that you may give me your blessing. Yitzhak his father said to him, Who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Yitzhak began trembling uncontrollably and said, Then who was it that took game and brought it to me? I ate it all just before you came, and I gave my blessing to him. That's the truth, and the blessing must stand. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst into loud, bitter sobbing. Father, bless me too, he begged. He replied, Your brother came deceitfully and took away your blessing. Esau said, His name, Yaakov, really suits him, because he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and here, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you saved a blessing for me? Yitzhak answered Esau, Look, I have made him your lord, I have given him all his kinsmen as servants, and I have given him a grain and wine to sustain him. What else is there that I can do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Father, bless me too! Esau wept aloud, and Yitzhak his father answered him, Here, your home will be of the richness of the earth, and of the dew of heaven from above. You will live by your sword, and you will serve your brother, but when you break loose, you will shake his yoke off your neck. 
Esau hated his brother because of the blessing his father had given him. Esau said to himself, The time for mourning my father will soon come, and then I will kill my brother Yaakov. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rivka. She sent for Yaakov, her younger son, and said to him, Here, your brother Esau is comforting himself over you by planning to kill you. Therefore, my son, listen to me. Get up and escape to Levin, my brother, in Haran. Stay with him a little while until your brother's anger subsides. Your brother's anger will turn away from you, and he will forget what you did to him. Then I'll send and bring you back from there. Why should I lose both of you on the same day? Rivka said to Yitzhak, I'm sick to death of Hitti woman. If Yaakov marries one of the Hitti women, like those who live here, my life won't be worth living. Chapter 28 So Yitzhak called Yaakov, and after blessing him, charged him, You are not to choose a wife from the Hitti woman. Go now to the home of Betuel, your mother's father, and choose a wife there from the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May El Shaddai bless you, make you fruitful and increase your descendants until they become a whole assembly of peoples. And may he give you the blessing which he gave Avraham, you and your descendants with you, so that you will possess the land you will travel through, the land God gave to Avraham. So Yitzhak sent Yaakov away, and he went to Padam Aram, to Laban, son of Betuel the Arami, the brother of Rivka, Yaakov's, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Yitzhak had blessed Yaakov and sent him away to Padam Aram to choose a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he charged him, You are not to choose a Canaanite woman as your wife, and that Yaakov had listened to his father and mother and gone to Padam Aram. Esau also saw that the Canaanite woman did not please Yitzhak, his father, so Esau went to Yishmael and took, in addition to the wives he already had, Machalat, the daughter of Yishmael Avraham's son, the sister of Nevayot, to be his wife. Yaakov went out from Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed the night there because the sun had set. He took a stone from the place, put it under his head, and lay down there to sleep. He dreamt that there before him was a ladder resting on the ground with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of Adonai were going up and down on it. Then suddenly Adonai was standing there next to him, and he said, I am Adonai, the god of Avraham your grandfather, and the god of Yitzhak. The land on which you are lying I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the grains of dust on the earth. You will expand to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. By you and your descendants all the families of the earth will be blessed. Look, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go, and I will bring you back into this land, because I won't leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Yaakov woke from his sleep and said, Truly Adonai is in this place, and I didn't know it. Then he became afraid and said, This place is fearsome. This has to be the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Yaakov got up early in the morning, took the stone he had put under his head, set it up as a standing stone, poured olive oil on its top, and named the place Betel. But the town had originally been called Luz. Yaakov took this vow, If God will be with me and will guard me on this road that I am traveling, giving me bread to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return to my father's house in peace, then Adonai will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a standing stone will be God's house, and of everything you give me I will faithfully return one-tenth to you. So here in Genesis chapter 27, we see Yitzhak, and he's old. He's 137 years old. And that was the same age that Ishmael was when he died. So Yitzhak was starting to face uh, mortality here. Um, 
he was nearly blind as well, and he decided to do a blessing. Now remember, he was 60 years old when the twins were born, so a lot of time had passed and the twins were now 77 years old when this blessing took place. And we also know that a lot of time had passed from the time that Esau had sold the birthright to Yaakov for a bowl of lentil stew more than half a century earlier. So this scene with Yitzhak and Esau was about the blessing that Esau was about to receive. This blessing, the Baraka, was not the final decision of who would be Bekor, the leader of the clan. In this case, it was the division of Yitzhak's wealth. When Rivka heard what her husband was about to do, she sprung into action and quickly devised this plan. She called her son, her favorite son, Yaakov, and said, Come here, you got to do everything that I say. You're going to get this blessing. There's no way we're going to let Esau get it. Keep in mind that Rivka had held on to those covenant words given her by God when she was pregnant with the twins, recorded in Genesis 25, verse 23, where it says, There are two nations in your womb. From birth they will be two rival peoples. One of these peoples will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. So Rivka shares her plan with Yaakov, and we see Yaakov being reluctant to go along with her plan. Why was he reluctant? Well, if his deception was found out by Yitzhak, he feared that a curse would be placed on him rather than a blessing. And Rivka tried to settle him and say, listen, you know what? Don't worry. If a curse comes on you, let the curse be on me. And that was enough for Yaakov to go along with his mother's crazy plan. Now, keep in mind, he wasn't some teenager being bossed around by his mom. He was a 77-year-old man. And he's here with his elderly mother scheming to deceive his father and brother. We had learned back in Genesis chapter 25-28 that Yitzhak loved Esau, for his hunt was in his mouth. Yitzhak appreciated Esau's ability to hunt and dominate the beasts, and this was a trait that was needed to dominate bestial peoples. So Esau would have been the sort of guy that could actually take care of the clan, protect, provide, and, and dominate. While Yaakov appeared to totally lack the necessary traits of dominance and power, and Esau was the firstborn anyway, right? And that's typically a sign that he's chosen by God to be the firstborn and have everything handed to him. Now I'd like to take a moment to just kind of see how the Torah contrasts the different ways in which Yitzhak and Rivka loved their sons. On the one hand, it says that Yitzhak loved Esau, past tense and how Yitzhak valued Esau's future, his progeny, not, not his present state, uh, which even Yitzhak could see was savage and violent, and with all the wrong choices that Esau had made in choosing his uh, Hittite wives as pagan wives. But for Rivka, the Torah uses a present tense. It says Rivka loves Yaakov. She loves and appreciates Yaakov's current state, of righteousness. And it seems that Yitzhak felt that, um, despite Yaakov's obvious spiritual and moral superiority, it wasn't up to Yitzhak to decide for himself who will carry on Avraham's spiritual legacy. Now before we move on with the story, let's just take a moment here and backtrack for a bit. I want to observe how God's process of divine selection goes beyond human understanding, and how it occurs in a hidden manner. So there was this little seed of light and good that was hidden away and concealed in darkness. 
I'm talking about the spiritual greatness of Avraham that in no way could be foreseen in the wickedness of his idolatrous father Terach. And it was only in this time of Yaakov that the nature of his children was revealed and it becomes apparent that the entire family was a seed blessed by God. But why was a seed of future good hidden away in wicked and evil people? Well, even negative character traits have their place in the world, right? And ultimately, they'll serve the greater good too. But in order to perfect righteous traits and and straight paths, these bad traits and these convoluted ways, they need to be upheld and, and kind of worked through. So this process of divine selection, it has to be free to progress according to God's design, without any human intervention. You know, my wife and I, we live by this very practice, and we use this phrase quite often. We say, get out of the way. And what that means is that we need to stop interfering with what we think ought to happen, and we need to get ourselves out of the way in order to make way for God's will to be done. And only God knows the path by which the pure will come forth out of the impure. So we got to be patient sometimes, and we really shouldn't disrupt things. Like um, in the case of Yitzhak, he, he shouldn't have disrupted the inheritance of the firstborn according to what seemed logical and reasonable to him. And like it says in Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6, Trust in Jehovah with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, then he will level your paths. Now I believe here that Yitzhak was simply doing what he knew was expected of him, to bless his firstborn, Esau, even though Esau had already sold his birthright to his brother. Now Yitzhak still wanted to bless Esau with his wealth, and he held on to hope for the future of his clan, despite Esau's negative character traits. Once again, only God knows the path by which the pure will come forth out of the impure. Now we do get a bit more of a clue about the character of the twins when we look back at one little detail at the time of their birth. Esau was coming out first, and then his brother emerged with his hand holding Esau's heel. If you have your study handout with you, I'd invite you to look at the sidebar where it says hand and heel. Now, Yaakov did have a connection to his brother's traits of cruelty, but these traits were not an integral part of his soul. But what was the significance of Yaakov's hand holding onto Esau's heel when they were born? Well, the heel represents the instinctive nature or the, the habit, and the Hebrew words for foot and habit are regal and hergal, they share the same root word, while the hand indicates willed and planned action. And Yaakov, having hold on Esau's heel, has a connection to those savage traits that were an intrinsic part of Esau's nature. For Yaakov, however, these traits, they weren't wild and undisciplined, but they were under the control of his hand and mind. So Yaakov, while being able to perform the same sort of brutal actions as Esau, uh, would only do it out of necessity and judicious choice. I mean, he would be distressed if he needed to utilize any of his brother's characteristics, uh, but he did recognize their usefulness in achieving the final goal. So with all that being said, let's jump back into the story. And we're here at Genesis 27, verse 27. And we 
see the opening words of the Baraka, um, and it shows that Yitzhak thought that the one receiving the blessing was Esau, the man of the field. And he knew this, remember, he was kind of blind at this point, and he heard the voice of Yaakov, but he felt the hairiness of Esau because they were deceiving him. But he smelled the field because Yaakov was wearing Esau's clothing. So once they were able to work through all that doubt, um, we see these opening words of the Baraka, and it revealed that Yitzhak's intention was to give Esau much of what the Bikor would have traditionally received. So Yitzhak proceeds with the blessing in verse 28. He says, So may God give you the dew from heaven, the richness of the earth, and grain and wine in abundance. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. May you be lord over your kinsmen. Let your mother's descendants bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So we see that Yaakov's deception is successful, and he receives the blessing that God had intended for him. And he held on to the birthright God told his mother he'd have, and he received the authority to lead the clan. Can you imagine that? Yaakov went through all these deceptions only to receive that which could never be denied him anyway. Why? Because the Lord God, Yehovah himself, had already determined it. And all Yaakov did was taint that which could have been pure. And here's something really important about the blessing. Once the Baraka was given, it was not reversible for any reason whatsoever, much like a king's decree. Now this must have been the most pivotal moment for this family when you have Yitzchak that had just given the blessing to Yaakov and Esau coming in thinking he could still get his blessing. And in that moment, Yitzchak realizes that he had been duped. In verse 33, we're told that Yitzchak began trembling uncontrollably. He was trembling violently. He was visibly shocked when this scandal was uncovered by the entrance of Esau. But why was he trembling so violently? Well, he would have remembered the words of the Lord to Rivka and realized in that moment that he had been working in opposition to God's will for all those many years. That would have made the shock that much more severe. But then we see him doing the right thing. He refuses to withdraw the blessing and he actually emphatically affirms its validity. And he's saying, yes, you know what? He shall be blessed. And uh, behold, I have made him your master and your brother you shall serve. Then we see Esau groveling, and he's weeping, and he is begging for his life. He's like, please bless me. Bless me too. Isn't there anything left? In verse 39, Yitzhak answers him, Here, your home will be of the richness of the earth, and of the dew of heaven from above. You will live by your sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you break loose, you will shake his yoke off your neck. Now hold on a sec. Doesn't the beginning of that actually sound a lot like the blessing that was given to Yaakov? See, what we're seeing here in verse 39 is actually a mistranslation. Tradition renders verse 39 as, Your home will be the richness or fatness of the earth, and the dew of heaven above. Yet literally, the verse reads, Behold, away from the richness of the earth, and away from the dew of heaven will be your home. So why the obvious difference? Like, why has the away part been rationalized out of existence? And how do we know that it even is a mistranslation? Well, we, we got to look at it in its fullest context. When correctly translated that Esau and his descendants will be held away from fertile lands, 
The second part of the blessing and Esau's response actually makes a lot more sense. In later history, the Edomites, who descended from the line of Esau, uh, they fought time and time again with Israel and eventually shook off Israelite control on several occasions. Here in verse 41, as angry as Esau was, and as much as he wanted to kill his twin brother, he thought that his father was on the verge of death, and so, out of respect for his aged father, he postponed his plans of murdering Yaakov. He would wait until after his father died before he killed his brother. But it turns out that Yitzhak ended up living another 43 years after this blessing. Of course, when Rivka learned about what Esau was planning to do to Yaakov, she, once again, came up with a plan. And she said to herself, why should I lose both of you on the same day? Now, why did Rivka say that? Well, because on the day that Esau kills Yitzhak, the Avenger of Blood would track him down and execute Esau. Now, this Avenger of Blood is usually the next nearest relative. Now, how was Rivka going to get Yitzhak to agree with sending Yaakov away? He had just received the blessing, and he was the Bekor. He was supposed to take care of this clan. So Rivka appeals to Yitzhak's hatred of the pagan tribes that surrounded them in order to get him to agree with her plan to send Yaakov away. She didn't say anything about Esau trying to kill him or anything like that. And Yitzhak hated the fact that Esau already had two Hittite wives from the pagan tribes. And so, once again, Rivka is successful with her planning. So in chapter 28, Yitzhak blesses the 77-year-old Yaakov before he is sent away. And these blessings and curses in the Old Testament should be carefully considered as they are always prophetic. So take the time to look over the, the wording of all these blessings that we're, we're reading about in these couple chapters. Now Esau was present when he heard the blessing that Yitzhak pronounced over Yaakov. And there was all this talk about, oh yeah, you know, the, the blessings of Abraham be on you and all this and that. And, and you shouldn't marry a Canaanite woman, you know. And what we see Esau do next is... He, he marries back into the line of Avraham, and it almost seemed like a, a ploy to gain his father's favor. And he hoped to atone for his past delinquencies by, by gratifying his parents' wishes and maybe have his father change the will. <laughs> um, he actually ended up increasing iniquity by adding to his collection of pagan wives a wife from a family that God had already rejected. See, Esau went back and married into the family of Ishmael, Avraham's other son, the one that was sent away, and that family line had been rejected, because the line of promise was to come through Yitzhak. So right here in scripture, it shows that Esau mixed with the descendants of this other group of people who have had very good reason, at least in their own minds, for hating Israel eternally, these descendants of Ishmael which today make up much of the Arab world, and largely the Turkish population, the Syrians, and the Kurdish people of Iraq. And we know from Bible prophecy that the Turks are going to play a primary role in the events of Revelation as enemies of Israel. Now this is really important that we grasp what's going on here. It was God himself that prophesied to the mother of these twins when she was pregnant with them, there are two nations in your womb, from birth, they will be two rival peoples. And here we see them 77 years later, finally separating as the two nations. 
they would become the Israelites from Yaakov, and their enemies, the Edomites from Esau. And then there's the prophecy of Yitzchak over Esau, that he would live by the sword. So violence and pillaging would be Esau's primary way of gaining wealth and prosperity. And as we've seen on a number of occasions, these prophetic blessings have more effect on the person's future descendants than on the person who originally received the blessing or the curse. (laughs) And this is what we find to be true as we follow the progress of Esau's line as well. Esau's descendants didn't become shepherds. They became conquerors and, and bands of robbers who descended on caravans that passed through their lands. And war was their way of life. And unfortunately, war is at the heart of their current religion, Islam. So naturally, this older brother, Esau, was bitter about what God had ordained and how he himself also contributed to allowing things to play out the way that they did and selling his birthright. But now he's here blaming his brother. But we see throughout scripture and the whole Bible that it doesn't criticize Yaakov for desiring both the birthright and the blessing, and neither should others. This story of the twins should never have been used to promote anti-Semitism. And I believe that by simply paying closer attention to the scriptures itself and looking and observing these blessings and curses and these prophecies, that we would come to learn more that this was all part of God's plan. And even when we try to take matters into our own hands, God's will will still be done. And I know that there are a lot of people that have a problem with that. But if you have an issue with that, you got to take it up with God. Don't shoot me. I'm just a messenger. Let's get back to the passage. We're looking here at Genesis chapter 28 and verse 10. So here, Yaakov leaves Beersheba, and he travels about 40 miles when he stops maybe two or three days later for a night's rest at this anonymous and very rocky place. And it's here in the Torah that we find Yaakov making a separate identity for himself, one that allows him to become the third and the last patriarch. And it's necessary for him to leave his land and his father, mother, and his siblings in order for God to work with him, just as it was with his grandfather Avraham. So Yaakov, while he's there in this rocky place, he has a dream, and it's actually a vision, and in it, he, he's given a glimpse of the heavenly spirit world, and he sees the Malak Elohim, these angels, going back and forth from heaven to earth, and they're receiving their instructions from God in heaven, and then going forth to do his will on earth. So God himself gives Yaakov the promise of the land and of many descendants, and he tells Yaakov that these descendants would bless all the families of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? And he also tells Yaakov not to worry, because God would be with him wherever he went, and he would bring him back to this land, because he had promised the land to Yaakov and his descendants forever. And it will happen just as he promised. See, here in verse 13, um, the original... Hebrew script reads Yudhe Yehoveh. It's using his personal name. So this is God the Father speaking to Yaakov, and Yaakov was very aware of this fact. The whole situation must have been very surprising for Yaakov. I mean, he had no clue that God was going to come to him in this manner. And, and also because, you know, Yaakov, he was probably feeling pretty defeated right about now. Um, this wasn't some happy trip to Mesopotamia that he was on. 
I mean, he was running for his life. I mean, he was leaving the scene of a disaster of his own making. He deceives his father and his brother to obtain this blessing, and then he had to walk away empty-handed just to survive. Man, that's got to be tough. Yaakov had just been blessed a few days earlier by his father, and this blessing represented the official transfer of the covenant promise from Yitzhak to Yaakov. But it was only at this point that Yehovah validated those blessings. Just as important as the message of this vision was, there's also an image in the vision that I think we have to pay very close attention to, and that would be this ladder that's mentioned in verse 12, or it might be better translated as a stairway between heaven and earth. Uh, This is another biblical type of what is to come. So the stairway represents the connection between man and God that was currently broken. Remember, in the beginning, man could come directly to God because God was present with man, but then rebellion and sin broke that connection, and God removed himself back to heaven. Yet, for those who trust, there is a ladder, this stairway, by which God sends his ministering angels to do his work on earth. So later, there would be another connection between heaven and earth that would come, the wilderness tabernacle. And still further into the future, the real ladder would come, the one who would reconnect God with man, Yeshua himself. Now, some of you might be thinking that this is just allegory or a nice story, but check out what Yeshua himself says in John chapter 1, verse 51. This is John 1, 51. Yes, indeed, I tell you that you will see heaven opened and the angels of God going up and coming down on the Son of Man. Friends, if we fail to thoroughly study the Torah, we can miss so much. I mean, if we don't first see what's happening in the story here with Yaakov in Genesis, how in the world would we possibly come to understand the statement that Yeshua makes 1800 years later? Yet I know in hindsight, it's an easy link to make, right? Because for Yaakov, this was like a current reality and a prophecy as well. For us, it's not only reality, it's prophecy fulfilled. Friends, Yeshua is our ladder. He is our stairway, the only ladder that connects us with God. And it's upon him that the angels ascend and descend today. Now check out how Yaakov responds in verse 16. He wakes up from his sleep and he says, Truly, Adonai is in this place, and I didn't know it. This place is fearsome. This has to be the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So he calls the place Bethel, house of God, or Bethel. Now watch out for the use of the word El, E-L, how it occurs before the exodus from Egypt. Because until God gave Moshe his personal name at Mount Sinai, God was most often known as El Shaddai, commonly translated as, as God Almighty. And after Mount Sinai, we start to see the use of the word El diminish, as it's slowly replaced by the word Yehoveh, Yudhevavheh. The significance of what Yaakov does next is not exactly clear, but he takes that stone that he was laying his head on when he received this vision, and he anoints it with oil. Now this obviously marked the significance of his encounter with God, but what else could it possibly mean? Anointing with oil was a rather widespread practice in this era, and it usually marked the the making of an agreement. 
And people would sometimes mark boundaries and create these memorial markers by using stone or standing stones, but they weren't anointed with oil. Is there a possible link here between what's happening with Yaakov's experience and the Messiah? Because Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one. And why so often is Yeshua referred to as a rock? I mean, we could see the physical characteristics of the solidness and the steadiness of a rock and apply that to Yeshua, but we also have to remember context, okay? Context in the New Testament is just as Hebrew as a context of the Old Testament. And the Hebrews didn't pick up any old metaphor that struck them. This was an ancient, traditional society that had an enormous history of well-established meanings in the events of the past, particularly the ones that involved the patriarchs. So I seriously suspect that calling Messiah Yeshua the rock referred as far back as this event with Yaakov, in which he anointed the rock that he rested his head upon. And Yaakov vowed to God that he would give all his allegiance to him, and that of everything God gave him, he would return a tenth. And here, once again, we see the principle of a tithe very early in Scripture. And that just about wraps up this week's Access Learn study. Now, there were a lot of important points that we covered here today, and I hope that you'd give more time to prayerfully reflect on them in your own personal study time, and perhaps get together with friends and family in your own Access Church communities and review the entire study together. Before I let you go, just a couple quick questions for you to consider. What lessons can you learn from the characteristics of the people in this story? What can you learn from observing the blessings and prophetic words in Scripture? What can you do to ensure that you don't interfere or get in the way of what God wills? And do you believe that Yeshua is the true ladder and the only hope of being connected with God? Friends, Thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. As always, it's such a joy to be able to get around God's Word and learn more about His plan and His purposes, and about His amazing love and His promises, and I'm so excited to see where He'll lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the Shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen.